once again to Father Spitzer's universe at the intersection where faith and reason collide. I'm Doug Keck, manning the uh, gate here as you enter into the universe, coming to you from the mothership in Irondale, Alabama, where our great foundress started it all back in 1981. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com, very important part of the show. And check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, the Magic Center one, the Purposeful Universe one, the spitzercenter.org. There's a, a plethora of information, good information on those sites. Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel and our EWTN On Demand page. And while you are at it on our On Demand page, you'll want to check out our new program we put up there, a mini-series, Work Out Your Salvation. Our great friend, Father Wade Menezes, shows you how to attain a life of grace and virtue by being faithful to your daily duty, one of the many programs, all for free, on, on demand. He's a very, very popular speaker here at EWTN. The Holy Eucharist is our topic for today as we continue from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. And speaking of books you should escape from, there's the book of the month. It's Simple Steps to a Stronger Marriage by the one and only Dr. Ray Garendi. He claims it doesn't have any secrets in it, but trust me, it does. Check that out through our religious catalog. With that being said, we turn to the master of secrets himself, Father Spitzer, who will explain it all on today's programming. Great to see you, Father. All right. If you'll kick Good things off with a prayer, you, that'd be great. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. Please send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience and staff, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Excellent. Good to see you, Father. Hope everything is well. Let's get to, a, to see you, a couple Father. of uh, articles we wanted to talk about, maybe. Uh, here's one that we've talked about on and off. <laughs> Scientific American essay applauds population decline as good news. Uh, they say a world with fewer people means a changed climate and better outcomes for those who remain human and otherwise of the planet in an essay in Scientific America magazine. Uh, so, uh, interesting uh, thing we hear <laughs> well, out there. Right? Scientific American, yeah, oh yeah. Well, Scientific American has a lot of very good articles. Right. Um, that essay is not one of them <laughs> because, of course, what it doesn't tell you is that uh, the long-term prospect uh, for population decline is not good news. Right. The long-term prospect, as uh, many like Elon Musk and others who are purely uh, coming at it from a purely secular point of view, is that we're going to have an implosion right. in uh, not only in uh, the United States but in every um, uh, developed country around the world. We'll have a population implosion that will put huge financial stressors on every single developed country. Uh, we're going to uh, have a uh, you know, basically right. one third of the population or less trying to pay for an elderly population with greater and greater medical needs. Uh, and this is going to be levying huge amounts of tax uh, burden on uh, this uh, younger right. generation. And furthermore, it's going to lead to real developmental crises, um, you know, to keep up, as it mm -hmm. were, with the uh, 
with the, um, the elderly population. Um, and we're going to just have to have yeah. huge immigration, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, basically, uh, you know, not only allowing immigra immigrants to come in, but we're going to have to uh, educate them, of course, because we need an educated workforce, and we're going to have to do this in a very concerted way. So um, the best solution is to keep your population up right. and admit immigrants from developing countries. If you do the double deal, you're not going to get in trouble um, so long as you educate right. the immigrants uh, that are coming uh, through the, the, the gates. And if you do both of those, you'll be fine. But a population decline in and of itself right. does not spell good news. Well, Maybe uh, it'll have a short-term effect on the well, environment, but it certainly well, I, <laughs> will I, I, be... Uh, well, uh, I... Stephanie Fieldstein yeah. begs to differ. Uh, she is the uh, yeah. uh, ultimately the opinion plate written by. She's the population and sustainability director at the Center for Biological Diversity. Uh, she says population decline is only a threat to an economy based on growth. Interesting. Shifting to a model based yeah. on degrowth and equity, alongside <laughs> lower fertility rates, will help fight climate change and increase wealth and well-being. Maybe for our new friends. Humans, therefore, must choose yeah. between population growth and the survival of the planet, the essay points out, uh, repeating previous claims uh, that declining population and aging demographics help governments meet cl climate change goals, which is really important, I guess. Yeah. Well, I guess she's, she's a pretty good expert in biological diversity, but that degrowth is uh, like a death knell for an economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, I'll just go with Elon Musk on that one, although you get a large number of economists that have commented on uh, what the, uh, the, the, um, the outcome will be. I've got those economists quoted in my book, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, and uh, that would be in chapter three um, of the book, and I talk about it in the birth control section and uh, the overpopulation myth section, and economists do not agree uh, with that uh, fine uh, lady. And the, the second thing uh, to, to, uh, to note is um, it's not just on the economic side uh, that the problem is going to come in. It's basically on all of the creativity that's being lost. Because after all, biological diversity is not an end in itself. Human flourishing is the end in itself because human beings are what the world was created for. We are not created to be the slaves, uh, as it were, of the creation that God had made mm -hmm. to accompany us. So um, uh, I think she's got everything precisely right. backwards, not just uh, economically, uh, but sociologically and philosophically. And at the end of the day, uh, she has turned basically one facet into an end in itself when we have to go back to human flourishing, and I would say in the same breath, the spiritual flourishing of the human being and the human community. That is, of course, um, the, the main objective of culture. Uh, biological diversity is an interesting thing we should take account of, mm. but it certainly is not our main and objective goal. Right, Th that's, that's unfortunately a very limited viewpoint and uh, really uh, quite a, a very limited essay. In, in a related article, but taking a different position, uh, this uh, woman, uh, her name is, uh, I'll know I mispronounce it, she's, she's Dutch, I believe, Eva Vlardinger Broek. I, I, I destroyed that, but 
She mentioned the point mm -hmm. that she didn't think there was anything more narcissistic and evil than pushing abortion over the issue of climate change. Uh, those who put abortion or argue against having children because of the supposed climate crisis she was criticizing. And she said, if you think life is hard or the world is too unfair to bring a child into, think about for one second about the lives of our ancestors, what they, how they lived, how it would never even have crossed their minds to kill their own babies for a second. Get a grip, you weak-minded, and she used a, a negative term there for people. And, and then uh, she actually had this on Twitter, and Elon Musk, because you brought him up before, uh, reacted to her and said, agreed with sentiments expressed by her, writing response, true. What's actually happening in most countries is population collapse. Very important to make new humans. Yep. No new humans means no humanity. I couldn't have said it better. And uh, not only, not, uh, I mean, I think both of them are right on the marker, and I have to tell you, uh, at the very same breath, they have the correct objective and goal. As Aristotle would say, it's always good to take account of what kind of goal you are searching for. Mm -hmm. Does it represent the highest in, in uh, potential? Does it represent the, uh, you know, the, the greatest amount of flourishing for the highest beings uh, that there are on the planet without destroying the lower beings, et cetera, et cetera? Now, you know, Aristotle could give a very good analysis of the first essay you read, but the second uh, set uh, is much better off. And by the way, I'd always say too, with respect to individual human rights, uh, before you tell, uh, uh, you know, abort human beings because you don't think that the world is good enough uh, for them to be brought into, you might want to ask them that question, not make the decision for them, because you have already answered the question in precisely the opposite way. The fact that you are still remaining here, and mm -hmm. apparently happily so, writing essays, clearly indicates that you uh, do think uh, life is worthwhile in this world. Mm -hmm. Why would you take it away from somebody else? Why would you kill another innocent preborn human being uh, and speak for them when uh, you've already spoken differently for yourself? That's uh, the old uh, philosophy of, uh, well, so long as I have enough uh, resources, great. But uh, I don't think you can. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm sorry, there's not enough room for both of us in this world. Right, and you might think, uh, uh, impact my been, resources uh, someday, and uh, that we can't yeah, have. that's right. Can't that's, have that happen that, either. That's you exactly know? I mean, it, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, all generous, exactly. generosity and charity. Uh, here's another story yep. that kind of relates to that too. Biden administration claims full-time mothers hurt the economy, uh, so they're concerned about <laughs> the GDP, and basically. They have a story in here that basically says, and this is what they're saying, their rationale, many Americans, particularly women, stay out of the workforce to care for their families, heaven forbid, making it hard for businesses to attract and retain a skilled workforce and for the economy to grow. Uh, this uh, BCG brief forecasts losses of $290 billion each year in gross domestic product in 2030 and beyond if the U.S. fails to address the lack of affordable child care. So... What they're concerned about is you got to get childcare paid for so you can get those women back in those very important workforce jobs rather than raising their families. <laughs> and we wonder it's why. So backwards. And by the way, why the country's uh, falling apart here, okay. right? 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you want your workforce uh, to be maintained, ha have some children. Mm -hmm. That's the A number one way of maintaining a workforce, by the way. It's the A number one way of uh, maintaining creativity within the workforce. It's the ma main number one way of maintaining human flourishing. Number two, uh, if women want to raise children to be very good citizens, and, and you know, a stay-at-home mom really does do that, and of course, if you mm -hmm. raise them in a religion, then they tend to be exceptionally good citizens because religious uh, background does help with not only uh, a person's uh, maintaining a good social responsibility, but also main, uh, helps uh, with ethical decision making at the time that the decision needs to be made. There are very good surveys that suggest this. So my thought would be lots of stay-at-home um, uh, moms uh, who are raising their children up with good religious, ethical, and loving environments where they can actually become very, very good citizens and have mm -hmm. a sense of security in themselves in a very good family that has remained unified where the father and the mom are together um, you know raising this child uh, you're going to get a crop of incredibly good human beings in the workplace and by the way just adding numbers to the workplace isn't going to do it you can get robotics to add numbers right. to the workplace what you need to do is to get good high-valued, religiously-oriented people who have an ethical dimension, a good sense of citizenship, a good sense of contribution to others, and a good sense of entering into human community that is peaceful and integrated and moral, rather than a bunch of identity politics where we all tear each other to shreds. The point, of course, is that if you want to do this, Follow Christ, mm -hmm. and you're going to have a super good workforce. Follow Christ, mm -hmm. and you'll have enough people in the workforce because you won't have aborted them all. Follow Christ, and you're going to have really good citizens, not dysfunctional ones, mm -hmm. where you have to create an entire workforce to deal with all the dysfunctionalities within all the people in the society and to make curative processes for all of the, uh, the, the, um, the, the disintegration within the culture that is taking place because of all the identity politics. They're so destructive and so antagonistic. Talk about agonistic structures. Gosh, it, it doesn't it matter where the workplace is developing, what the workplace is oriented toward, toward creative, good, human flourishing with moral values? Wouldn't that be the first question that needs to be answered? What's the workplace all about before we talk about building it up? Toward what end? Mm -hmm. If we don't have any goals, then any road will get you there. So the point I'm trying to say is this is just the most illogical, unthought out, pretentious, well, I don't want to say, uh, you know, idiotic, but mm -hmm. something close to it uh, approach, uh, you know, to, to, to looking at the workplace and to looking at, of course, human economies and to looking at the objectives for our society right. and culture. Just not, not wise, not good, not logical, not intelligent. Right, and it's interesting too because it's a whipsaw. Because on one hand you got them talking about that, the other hand they yeah. talk about AI, and everybody's going to be out of work. So I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like, you know, I, I, what can I say more? I mean, I, it's just so discouraging to see this, and 
course, is being perpetuated right. by the president, I say no more. Right. Well, they have certain goals they, they want to get, achieve. So uh, here's another story. Yeah, but it's certainly not the goal of human flourishing, that's right, for right. sure. Well, speaking of <laughs> human, human flourishing, here was an article, uh, yeah. and I thought it was interesting. It uh, has to do with homeschooling. It points out that homeschooling rose uh, oh. to one in 10 American kids in 2021 due to lockdowns. And the numbers remain high even as the lockdowns abated. Most families who began homeschooling due to mm -hmm. lockdowns say they don't plan to go back. Despite steady increase in homeschooling since its revival in the 80s, families who choose this way of raising their kids often fa face fearful responses from family and friends, chief among them the concerns that people often call socialization. Will your kids be socialized? Will they have be friends, et cetera? And the woman who's writing is actually uh, an editor at The Federalist. And she was pointing out, and I thought it was interesting, what she saw in her homeschooling experience with her kids uh, of what she saw mm -hmm. that they brought forward that was a positive, certainly, in the homeschooling. Uh, and, and I just wanted to run through mm -hmm. them. One was uh, independent thinking. Another one was more practice with multi-age relationships. Another one was more pro-social habits and expectations. Better ability to choose friends better family relationships. This is, again, this person's personal experience. Mm -hmm. Let me see another one here that mm -hmm. I saw was uh, more creative hobbies and entrepreneurial instincts uh, and a more individual personality. So I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, kind of having the opposite effect of what kind of gets portrayed out there as to, uh, you know, the downside of the, you know, the kind of the strange family that's homeschooling their kids and, you know, and suffocating them and not letting them, you know, participate in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think she's right on the marker. And I, uh, like I said, she's speaking from experience. So I can't amplify that uh, any better than she has done. That's, that's a great, great article. Very good. Another story quick, uh, just as I mentioned, kind of a headline. I thought you'd find this interesting. Polish entrepreneur discusses his new apostolate. He was talking to the Pope where he's praying for teenagers uh -huh. who are tempted to, to commit suicide because of the, the incredible number of suicides coming, uh, oh, yeah. uh, uh, rising, and, and certainly uh, contrary to some people's comments, even recently the president said, you know, praying and isn't enough on a particular issue. Uh, maybe it's not, but certainly prayer would help in this issue. Yeah, it certainly would, and um, I think we need to teach our young people how to pray because uh, there is um, uh, a very uh, interesting direct correlation uh, between the lack of religiosity and the engagement in uh, sort of um, the narcissistic effects of social media where you want to get your face redone and mm -hmm. do all these various things uh, as you, you know, enter more and more into social media likes, et cetera. Uh, you take those two elements, the decline in religiosity mm -hmm. and the, um, the increase in, in social media, and what do you see almost proportionately rising suicides. Mm -hmm. uh, not just suicides, but also youth homicides. So, you know, we've, you know mm -hmm. the suicides are twice as high as the youth homicides, but over a 10-year period, uh, we've seen 53 in, uh, percent, uh, 56% increases before uh, COVID in the suicide rate. 64% in depression and anxiety rates. This is of young people, mm. and a 23% increase in homicides for young people. That was over a 10-year period before COVID. Now with COVID, 
you can double and triple those things and the, the results of statistics are just coming in right now but it mm -hmm. is not happy news right. uh, it's very bad news and so the suicide rate is you know out of control and young women in particular that is unbelievable you know the the suicide rate is just uh, you know going out of sight so all I can say is mm -hmm. this is not a healthy culture and I've said it many times in this program, mm -hmm. uh, the definition of insanity is continuing in the same right. modality, with the same strategy, uh, with the same disastrous effects uh, over and over right. again without discontinuance. That will surely right. lead you insane, but it will also surely lead this culture right into the ground. Um, you know, I don't want to get to the state of tearing each other apart, right. but right now, you know, people are just so self-destructive, they are so bullying, they are so mm -hmm. other-destructive, the addiction rate is through the ceiling, the substance abuse, etc. The familial tensions are so over the top uh, that are going on, even in the healthiest sometimes of families. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps maybe, maybe the homeschooling can ignore them, but it's mm -hmm. just, it's, it's not good out there. Right. And we need to reverse ourselves in a hurry, and there's two steps we can take right off the bat, increase religiosity and decrease social media use. Uh, or at least limit it to where it can be productive right. and maturely monitored. And, and if we can do those two things and cut back on the huge narcissistic uh, mm. you know, um, uh, in increases that have happened in the culture and cut back on just the, the almost uh, you know, egomaniacal ways right. in which we treat each other so cruelly. You know, it's not just, I mean, the cancel right. culture is just the edge right. of it. Well, yeah. it's interesting, too, because I was thinking back to last week's discussion. You were talking about Edith Stein and her essay on empathy. Yeah. And, and you see some of this, mm -hmm. especially, I'm not talking so much of the suicide, but you, like you said, the homicide and the killings, the, the, the perceived lack of empathy for the people who do these things, who, who you know, kill somebody or, or beat somebody up horribly and without no, no feeling at all. Yeah, no, that's, that is, uh, you know, the psychopathic end of it, because the minute you lose your sense of empathy, right. uh, basically you're either a psychopath or a sociopath, mm -hmm. uh, depending on how you decide to manifest it. But the, the main thing is, is uh, that sense of empathy is, is critical. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you need a love in, in your life, but you also need a sense of hope and a sense of the love of God in your life, a sense of really the mooring of a secure identity in your life. And that comes from two major sources, from a really healthy, good family life and from a religious life. And as I've said many times on this program, uh, re practice of religion and uh, the, a good family life are reciprocally ordered. Mm -hmm. So if you look at those Thornton studies, mm -hmm. you can see that if you are highly religious, you can see that the family life is stronger. If the family life is stronger, they are more likely mm -hmm. to, be, uh, to increase their practice of religion together. And of course, they play on each other. And you know what does cohabitation do? It, it gives rise to a decline not mm -hmm. only in religion, but it gives rise to a huge stress level within the relationship that even if the, the, uh, the cohabitation turns into a marriage later, 
they take the stresses with them and the decline in religion with them, yeah. which means that over the long term, if you read that Rosen, Rosler and Rosenfeld study, right, you can see that this basically leads uh, to less marital yeah. satisfaction uh, in the long term. And uh, the longer the cohabitation, uh, right. then the shorter the marriage. So the longevity of the marriage will also be affected. Absolutely. Okay, let's get to some questions that people have sent to us, if we can. Uh, first up, uh, sure. dear Father Spitzer, now Eve was created fully innocent and by her disobedience she became stained by sin and all her descendants after her. Mary was born fully innocent and by her obedience she who remained pure became the mother of the one who would conquer sin and death. It is a beautiful mystery, but here's my confusion. Why isn't Joseph, I guess St. Joseph, the new Adam then? It seems Christ is more than the new Adam. Can you untangle this for me, Helen? So if Eve's the new Eve, why isn't St. Yeah. Joseph the new Adam? Yeah, well, because uh, Christ was designated to be, well, by the new Adam is not just meant a, you know, like a, a person, it's meant the refashioning of the human being in a way that didn't exist before. And that refashioning uh, that comes through Christ comes through our baptism into the mystical body of Christ, right? It comes, that baptism which gives us the Holy Spirit that helps us to overcome concupiscence. We're still free. We still have a, 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 you know, a nature that has been wounded, but not fully wounded. Remember, in the Catholic Church, we're not Calvinistic, right? right. In the Catholic Church, we do believe that human beings are at least 51% good. Um, and and we, we haven't fallen totally. And that the Holy Spirit works through that goodness within us. The church that we belong to and practice in works through that goodness within us. The family and the family values that we embrace works through that goodness that's within us. And so with the Spirit and uh, the Holy Spirit, with the church, the sacraments that we receive, the, the good family life, the values that we try uh, to um, not only aspire to, but try to practice, all of these things are helping us uh, to overcome, but we're becoming the new man. Mm -hmm. And so, right, the, um, for St. Paul, who uses this image very often, you know, he's talking about the old man and the new man. Well, at baptism, when we receive the Holy Spirit, and when we uh, take seriously the teaching of Christ, and when we become integrated into the church at baptism, all three of these events happen at baptism and they're reinforced considerably every time we receive the Holy Eucharist. What St. Paul is saying is we're becoming the new man, but we have to follow up on it, right? And so Christ alone, Christ alone could have been that refashioner. He's the only one mm -hmm. that can bring the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that can institute the church into which we're going to belong. He's the only one that will become the so the, the ground of the mystical body, right? It's Christ's mystical body into which we're oriented when we belong not just to the outward church, but to the inner church, the mystical body, where we belong in there integrated with the communion of saints. And all of these things, it's Christ alone that can do that. And so it wasn't uh, trying to, you know, when Paul was making the statement, he wasn't trying to achieve a parallelism. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, so that, you know, Joseph could be uh, the new Adam along with Mary, the new Eve. It's just that uh, Jesus had to be the one to bring the church in his own mystical body. He had to be the one to give us the Holy Spirit connecting with that church. He's the one to give us the sacraments that, that help us to overcome the effects of concupiscence. All of these things have to be, uh, the new Adam has to be Jesus, the Son of God. But Mary mm -hmm. also is the new Eve because she's not only the mother of the Son of God, but has been specially chosen as the one whose free disposition was capable of raising Jesus, her son. Remember, Jesus is also fully human. Mm -hmm. And as fully human, Jesus needs to be raised by a mother who really is not affected um, uh, by concupiscence. She is really a, um, a person whose, um, you know, uh, her act of freedom is almost a perfect act of freedom. And so, uh, you can see that um, uh, this is um, uh, going to make his humanity uh, uh, perfect. He's raised by a mom who, who really uh, has uh, the Beatitudes writ large in her heart. And uh, she practices them and even did practice them, uh, you know, even before her engagement to Joseph. That doesn't mean that Joseph, Joseph should be marginalized. Mm -hmm. He's very important. And remember, he was handpicked, too. By God, I mean, uh, you know, Mary's not going to marry Saint Joseph without the um, uh, full consent, as it were, of the Heavenly Father before mm -hmm. His Son is incarnated into the womb of Mary. Mm -hmm. So Joseph is another hand-picked individual, but of course not hand-picked to be the new Adam because only Christ, the Son of God, could be the new Adam. Okay, very good. With that, we're going to take a break. Thank goodness we hand-picked you to be the center of this program and the center of this universe and drive this program. So we're going to stay right with there. You. Paul, stay Along with, with you. Stay with there, Father Spitzer. And stay with us as well. Uh, we'll be back momentarily here in Father Spitzer's universe. More questions straight ahead. you sticking with us for part two of Father Spitzer's universe as we continue on. Our main topic is on the Holy Eucharist from Father's wonderful book, Escape from Evil's Darkness, and all of his books are available through our catalog. But of course, right now we're dealing with some questions that you've sent into us, which are a central part of the program. Kicking off uh, part two of the show, dear Father Spitzer, I'm still confused at 64 years old. Uh, I hear you. Uh, what is the difference between dogma, church doctrine and a statement of infallibility. Does the church have a definitive list, Walter? Yeah, it sure does. I mean, a, a doctrine, of course, uh, would be, uh, you know, something that uh, we would say um, is the precursor to a dogma. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a doctrine uh, then would be something that uh, would be considered true, um, you know, in the, in the Catholic Church. But when you have a dogma, that means that it is part of the unchangeable truths of the Catholic Church and that that dogma and the way it is written is considered a part of 
what you might call extraordinary church magisterium, and uh, that would be uh, basically, yes, it would be mm -hmm. infallible, mm -hmm. absolutely, and infallible exactly as it is defined, and that is a, another technical term. So a dogma is the highest uh, state, uh, if you mm -hmm. would, uh, if you will, of um, of uh, of an infallibility of uh, of a truth in the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. uh, but doctrine, of course, is the precursor to it uh, before it becomes immortalized into the dogmatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, state uh, and of course an infallible statement well an infallible statement is is uh, slightly different I mean you can have infallible mm -hmm. statements from uh, what we call church councils uh, in conformity with the Pope mm -hmm. uh, that could so like if the Second Vatican Council or uh, you know the Council of Nicaea were to um, utter uh, you know a proclamation or to give a proclamation and uh, they would do it uh, uh, almost unanimously with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, also the pope the pope signing off mm -hmm. on on that statement that would be an infallible statement uh, we know that the pope can also speak ex cathedra which means that he can also uh, d define something uh, dogmatically and so uh, and when you see something you know the dogmatic constitution of the Catholic Church, that's pretty much defined infallibly by mm -hmm. the Church Council, and so you can, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, you have to meet certain conditions in in order for, by the way, an ex cathedra infallible statement mm -hmm. to be made. But if the Pope, uh, uh, all those conditions are met, mm -hmm. that's an infallible statement too. Okay. So uh, uh, I think that. You can see yeah. there's overlap right. between these things uh, very clearly, but um, I hope that it maybe maybe it confused you more. I, I hope not. No, I, I don't <laughs> think so. You know, anyway, you, you, uh, you're going to have yeah. like Newman's development of doctrine, but there's it's not like you can overturn a doctrine yeah. just because it's not a dogma yet. So uh, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's correct. That's correct. There's another question. No, you, you can't overturn a doctrine. Yeah, that's right. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, yeah. you have had an immense impact on my faith in Jesus. May God continue to bless you and the EWTN team. We thank you. Thank you. How can someone oh, ever fully experience eternal peace and joy in heaven if the people they loved on earth did not also make it to heaven? Am I having, I am having a very hard time imagining myself being at complete peace in heaven without my wife, children, parents, or other loved ones there with me. I think even in heaven I would be deeply sad sad knowing they are separated eternally from God, Jeremy. Well, Jeremy, that's a, a frequently asked question. And I guess there's two thoughts I, I would put in um, before, uh, you know, before we start. The first thing is, is if someone were to go to hell, it would be because they chose to do so. That's what they wanted. In other words, uh, you know they, uh, you know they buy into something that um, uh, that is very dark, uh, and um, you know they they basically allow themselves to get seduced uh, by the evil spirit into that uh, dark uh, you know mode of existence, and so eventually, when it comes down to the the final moments of of life, uh, you know they. Uh, 
they're choosing it. I mean, mm -hmm. if they didn't really choose it with um, a full, uh, full consent, of, uh, sufficient knowledge and full consent of the will, they wouldn't be in hell. Mm -hmm. Because in order to have that mortal sin, there has to be sufficient reflection and no impediments to the free use of the will. So it has to be a free choice. And that says something. If somebody's, you know, if you got up to heaven and, you know, you found out somebody chose to go to hell, you wouldn't want to say, in order for me to be with them in their choice, I'd rather be in hell. I mean, you just have to, in a way, let go of the fact that they made that choice mm -hmm. without impediment to the free use of their will. That's where they wanted to go. And if that was the case, then at least you can know that um, you're not going to, you know, follow mm -hmm. them, in, you know, into that, uh, you know, reality. And the second thing I would hasten to add too is, do you really think your wife or your kids is go are going to be seduced to that extent yeah, to choose, mm -hmm. uh, you know, hell with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will? Well. Um, you know, I mean, that's probably not is what I would right. say. So um, the best we can do, honestly, Jeremy, is three things. Number one, we can try and convince our spouses and children and the people we love to take really seriously the matter of religion mm -hmm. and to take seriously the teachings in the church um, you know, of uh, Jesus Christ and to take seriously Jesus Christ himself, right? I mean, the best we can do is to, you know, try to do that. Sometimes they're just not going to follow. So our second best path is to pray for them constantly and pray that their rejection of the path is not a rejection of heaven itself, that the, their rejection of the teachings of Jesus and the church of Jesus is not a rejection of, um, you know, the, of, uh, of heaven itself and of the beloved itself and of Jesus himself, that somehow there's an impediment to their free choice or there's somehow a gap in knowledge or something, but we just got to pray and pray and pray. Right. And right. the third thing, you know, uh, okay. No, go ahead. Yeah, the third thing we could do is just to go ahead and pray too, um, you know, that, uh, you know, even if they go like seemingly to the last minute, uh, you know, rejecting God or rejecting the church or something of that nature, that God will in some sense come into the picture and, um, uh, you know, give them some form of enlightenment at the last minute, right. uh, you know, as the, you know, um, happened with the the curie of ours, you know, when uh, he got the revelation of that guy jumping off the bridge, uh, getting that uh, enlightenment from God uh, and, and just uh, at that very moment going, oh, what a mistake I've made in the split second before he hits the water and says, I'm sorry. And, uh, and that he could go back and tell the wife of that fellow, right. uh, you know, that, uh, that uh, he was saved. So, I mean, that's what you can do, and everything else is out of your hands. You can't take away the free choice of even the ones you love to even do the most horrible thing 
like choose hell with sufficient reflection, right. full consent of the will. And of course, Saint Faustina talks about that—the idea of that uh, that that mm -hmm. momentary where kind of the where our Lord beckons again and gives somebody up, which kind of jives with what the Cure of Ours is saying. So, uh, you know. Oh yeah, and yeah, many so. others too, many other saints. Yeah, but Noah's, uh, 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 you know, Sister um, Faustina Kowalska, she she yeah. really has several passages mm -hmm. on this in her um, in her diary. Uh, that are very much worth reading, and right. um, you know they do uh, say similar things. Yeah, that the Lord gives a that last minute, you know, chance. You know, right. yes or no, up or down, and uh, I really do believe that. I really do. Mm -hmm. I think uh, um, you know you can see it in a, a variety of other saints as as well that there really right. is that uh, that choice. Uh, one quick uh, question just before we get to uh, our topic. Dear Father Spitzer, mm -hmm. I've been reading about St. Edmund Campion, his thrilling saga of courage and dedication to God yeah. during the Elizabethan period. Catholics were hunted down and persecuted, executed for practicing the Catholic faith. His story and others like him are truly inspiring, would be good spiritual nutrition for our youths in Catholic school. What are your thoughts on the importance of educating people about these exemplary men? This is Martin, and I'll say that we, we have a program on Edmund Campion, and we have a new, another program called Faith of Our Fathers having to do with persecution of the church in Ireland that will be premiering this summer. You can look for that as well. Go ahead, Father. Well, no, that's right, and um, the good, Doug, I think it's important. I think also, you know, it's, uh, definitely reading the classics or looking at some good videos produced by EWTN and others mm -hmm. of the lives of these uh, uh, incredible men and women uh, because they are really, uh, truly amazing lives. Uh, Evelyn Waugh wrote a great um, uh, little uh, biography on uh, Edmund Campion, which was uh, mm -hmm. uh, terrifically done. And um, boy, you, you read the brag of Edmund C Campion at the end there. Uh, it's so edifying, it's so courageous. I mean, and uh, he knew, you know, it, it was gonna, you know, they were gonna get him eventually because there's all kinds of spies that were out there. Even though they did have the priest's holds and things mm -hmm. like that, where people could slip into these little secret panels and mm -hmm. things. Um, the, you know, there would always be some person who would squeal eventually and, uh, you know, to the authorities and then when that happened, mm -hmm. uh, they did come and get him. And so, um, the, uh, uh, you know, there's several other really good uh, ones, but I would say uh, EWTN also has a super good series, The, the Doctors of the Church. Right, right. Uh, that's another one that's really... Uh, uh, worth uh, looking at because you not only get the lives of great courageous saints like Saint. Ed by the way, Saint Edmund Campion was an Oxford first uh, scholar and was so well recognized that even Elizabeth the first, who was later to persecute him, uh, basically knew this guy was truly, uh, you know, the top, you know, point zero zero one percent. Of, of people and uh, educated in England. Mm -hmm. So he was both, uh, you know, a, a, a really brilliant orator, but also a, uh, a really courageous saint. So there's, yeah. uh, but I agree with you, the more we uh, put those uh, things out there, uh, the better. And uh, of course, uh, the one thing to pray for is not to be drawn and quartered right. uh, at the end of your life. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, no, I say uh, uh, get them to as many of the kids as possible 
so edifying. And there are age-appropriate Lives of the Saints um, where they really do right. have some very good programs. Um, I forget the names of the programs, but they're Absolutely. out there. And check out EWKent.com on, on demand and see what we have available as well. A lot of kids' programs also. Uh, uh, my Catholic Family, which focuses uh, as a cartoon on, on great saints as well. Uh, in, in your book, uh, mm -hmm. you, we were talking last week about the idea about receiving the Eucharist and, we, but, and its transformation effect on us. But also, you're talking here about we're not only dealing with the personal transformation, we pray for the church, the unity of the church, the life of the world, and the church reaching out uh, in, in its spiritual and, and temporal need. How does that work? Yeah, uh, well, um, uh, you know, the church reaching out, uh, um, you know, the church community just doesn't stay within itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the church community is always moving, uh, you know, into the world beyond itself. Uh, the interesting thing about Catholic saints, um, uh, I mean Catholic mystics, is that Catholic mystics just don't, you know, go into a room and become solitaries. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge difference uh, between them and some, some forms of Eastern uh, mysticism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, what the Catholic saint does is, you know, even in the mystical life, they're out there like St. Teresa of Avila starting new convents and of course, you know, people are trying to shut her down. She's, she's got all the problems that anybody else in the world has because she doesn't go into uh, a room by herself. She doesn't uh, move into a solitary environment. She comes right back into the world. And this is one of the great characters. There's a, a wonderful writer, a, a mystic, a writer of, of mysticism called um, uh, um, uh, Evelyn Underhill. And uh, mm -hmm. right, she right. actually lists as one of the key interesting Christian characteristics is the fact that the Christian mystic, you know, like St. John the Cross or St. Teresa of Avila, clearly mystics in the first sense of that word, awed by God's love and beauty and, you know, the prayer uh, of quiet and the prayer of union that uh, really is so ecstatic mm -hmm. that, you know, as Teresa of Avila describes it herself, she says, on those days when the Lord would just come to me in this way, uh, I would be in such ecstasy, I'd walk around like, uh, you know, we call it a zombie today. Mm -hmm. I, I would, I'd walk around like, you know, in, in a state of, you know, complete, you know, impervience to, to anything else around me. And she basically continues to say, uh, you know, that the feeling of joy is so overwhelming, mm -hmm. uh, she loses her sense of time. And of course, the love is so overwhelming in mm -hmm. the union with w the one she calls the beloved, right, is so overwhelming that it takes over all of her faculties, but at the same time uh, enlightens her um, and, and not just pu pu puts her in a state of ecstasy, but helps her in her continued conversion but the one thing she says, too, is mm -hmm. that she comes right back to the world. Mm -hmm. So the state of ecstasy is not the final point. The final point is that the ecstasy leads to the mm -hmm. co continuing conversion, which leads you back into the world in a more effective way mm -hmm. to serve God's church and God's little ones. And that, of right. course, is uh, the outreach. Uh, mm -hmm. 
of the church. Do you think sometimes yeah. that's where sometimes people have gotten lost, whether it was from the charismatic renewal or other renewal things where they get caught up in the emotion, they're getting so much fed in such a way, the excitement that they, they end up chasing effectively some form of sign and wonders rather than realizing, no, you've been given this gift so you can deal with life. Yeah, well, also, yes, I think, you know, um, uh, in some ways there are some people who do that. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people in the charismatic renewal, though, uh, who don't chase signs and wonders. They see them uh, all the times, all the time, but they basically are truly very active, good uh, right. Catholics doing stuff for not only the church, but doing things for um, you know, the poor of the world mm -hmm. or just the people who need education. I mean, you know, who wants to uh, to teach, you know, some forms of CCD? You know, I remember my mm -hmm. brother said, well, nobody wants to teach uh, eighth grade CCD. I, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I said, what else is, knows, you know, and, and he goes, well, I guess I'll do it. I said, that's a very good idea. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, the fact that he can find some things to share with the eighth graders is great, you know. I don't know, he gets whale teeth or something, right. and he says, okay, the the proportion of the whale tooth to the jaw is this amount, but at the end of the day, the point comes down to, didn't God marvelously design right. the world? But, you know, right. he's got all this uh, variety of and bones I want, and, and teeth. I, I want to apologize <laughs> before I get any emails that I'm not disparaging the charismatic renewal. I meant to say, there are certain oh, yeah. people in certain movements over the years of the church who over a period yeah. of time oh, yeah. found themselves leaving the church or, or looking at other places because they were looking for that continued high rather than looking like uh, this yeah. is the energy that allows me to deal with life and, and, and what I'm being called to do in the church. In fact, I always think with that probably the, the transfiguration always struck me the most with that, with Peter saying, hey, it's great, let's mm -hmm. build the tents, we'll stay here, rather than realizing, stay no, here. no, you're exactly. being prepared so you can deal with what's going on in Jerusalem, you know. That's right. And also, I might add that St. John of the Cross, when, you know, he's talking about ascent to Mark Carmel, and, you know, he eventually gets to the dark night of the soul. You know, one of the reasons for the dark night of the soul is to, you know, once you've experienced the ecstasy, is to kind of get you detached mm -hmm. from living for that mm -hmm. so that you can, you know, continue the moral conversion and continue to serve uh, in a better way in the church. So uh, that's the, the key element right. there, uh, too. So, yes, you can get, um, you know, as it were, high on the ecstasy mm -hmm. and stay there. And that's why the dark night of the soul rushes in, mm. so you don't get too attached to that, right. but rather know that the ecstasy is pointing to the consolation which will be yours in all eternity after you have detached yourself from your ego and from sensuality, and that your service uh, to the kingdom of the Lord in this world is completed. Absolutely. So, and John Cross, very, uh, he's very, you know, um, uh, you know, very clear about right. that. Now, and uh, just before we go, we got about uh, three minutes or so. The fifth grace of the mm -hmm. Eucharist you talk about is eternal salvation and the whole idea of eternal uh -huh. life. You say the gospel passage, which you have in the book here, summarizes Jesus's primary intention at the Last Supper to secure the eternal salvation of all who receive his body, blood in 
the faith. I thought it was to be welcoming, but uh, apparently there, there's a greater need to go to Mass uh, <laughs> here than you're bringing yeah. out, which is why yeah. the church is focusing yeah. on the Eucharist over the next two years. So. Well, you know, the, I always, uh, the interesting thing is, is um, as you receive the Holy Eucharist, you know, uh, worthily in your life, you will notice that that path to heaven it's not just, you know, I, I'm, I clearly know the teachings of Jesus or something that I should follow in things. Mm -hmm. But you know what's so interesting is the path gets more and more solidified and clear. Mm -hmm. So if I move even a few inches off the path, all of a sudden I can feel that sense of emptiness, alienation, loneliness, mm. malaise, despair, etc. I can feel it, you know, and so because, you know, as you receive that Eucharist, you become, you know, so transformed in Christ that if you start veering uh, off the path even a little bit, you know, you can see that um, you're going to feel it mm -hmm. much more intensely. And I look back, you know, when I was a young man, <laughs> when I could really do some veering off the path, <laughs> right? And I look, uh, you know, uh, there, I didn't feel that sense of malaise or, you know, that sense of darkness or fear even of mm -hmm. getting off the path. But that's like Jesus' security blanket. It's almost like I've got this protective wall. Mm -hmm. So if I start just veering a little, it's like, whoa, I don't like how I feel. Mm -hmm. And I try to get right back on the path once again so I can be at peace with the Lord I love and who loves me first. And so the idea then is, is uh, it really, that path mm -hmm. is, is such a critical thing. And it's not just like those feelings of alienation and so forth that the Lord gives us with more intensity as we receive the Eucharist. It's also you get that same kind of clarity that mm -hmm. St. Teresa of Avila is talking about of, you know, just knowing what is of Christ and what's not of Christ intuitively. I always, you know, kind of compare it to, you know, when I was younger, I used to read these C.S. Lewis books and I go, or, you know, G.K. Chesterton books, and I go, that's right, that's right, that's right. And then I put it down and go, why, what's, why is that right again? You know, and, and of course, I just knew at the time I was convicted mm -hmm. intuitively before I even knew how to do the propter quid, the reason for the fact, right? I just knew, you know, intuitively, this is truth. And so you get that kind of clarity, that kind of con inner conviction without necessarily all the study that goes into it. But the Eucharist does a lot of that kind of mm -hmm. gift as well, which again gets that path uh, to salvation uh, going uh, very clearly. And then uh, you have a pretty good idea yeah. too, as you're receiving the Holy Eucharist, how the Holy Spirit works through you in your relationships with others. But slowly but surely, as I receive the Holy Eucharist, and there is, you know, the detachment from ego, and that's the hardest detachment. But um, if we cooperate with the Lord and we do try to detach from being, you know, the grand poobah, right. you, know, you know, right in, in the middle of the, uh, you know, egocentric, narcissistic world, as we detach, um, the Eucharist will help us. If it right. is our will that we want to be doing things like Christ did things, if it's our will that we want to be like Him, for He has loved us first, right. then well. it, the Eucharist is the way because by co-naturality, 
you start detaching from the well, we world. Need to, uh, we Just need to we need to detach this this week uh, <laughs> from the program, uh, Father. If you'd give us your blessing on the way out the door, <laughs> and bow your heads and pray for God's blessing, and may the Lord, who gives us this precious gift of the Holy Eucharist, give you all of these tightenings of the pathway, these strengthenings of the pathway right into his eternal kingdom, filling you with knowledge and with certitude and with compassion and with a sense of right and wrong, a sense of what's appropriate and not appropriate. Not only that you may get to heaven, may, may lead others into that very kingdom to which we all aspire in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week, and we hope to see you as well. Don't forget Father Spitzer's books, DVDs, available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. Next week, we continue talking about the Holy Eucharist. Bookmark this weekend. A very interesting one. The Devil and Bella Dodd, One Woman's Struggle Against Communism and Her Redemption, and that redemption's in the Catholic faith, by Paul Kengor. Very interesting interview. Check it out. Also look for the Holy Mass on the Feast of St. Rita from the National Shrine of St. Rita of Kasha in South Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Monday, May 22nd at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Doug Keck. Thank you so much for joining us. We shall see you next time when we re-enter Father Spitzer's universe. Thanks. <laughs>